Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Sheep Thrills. Um, this is so funky. They just, they put a little like adapter thing on the mic. So now it's like bouncing, or the sound is bouncing around a lot. Um, this is different. Anyway, <laughs> welcome back to another exciting and dare I say thrilling episode of Sheep Thrills. Um, today we are going to be talking about the recent Supreme Court hearings on the um, Joe Biden's student loan debt program, uh, talk about what they talked about and the potential future of that program and student loan relief kind of in general. Uh, we're then going to be talking about the Chicago mayoral race. Uh, they, re they had their um, elections this past week. It's going to go to a runoff. There's a lot to talk about there, lots of good memes, so we're going to get into that. Um, and then, as we've been doing for the past couple weeks, and as I think I'm probably going to stick with for the remainder of the season, um, I'm going to talk about a couple miscellaneous pieces of 2024 news, um, just kind of have that be a little segment in itself, just because tis the season for campaign announcements and campaign events. So we're going to be just kind of getting into a couple shorter stories um, about 2024 all the way across the board. Um, also a little bit of housekeeping in case I forget to do this at the end. Um, I'm taking a little two-week break. I'm going, I'm going on vacation. Um, so, you know, you're not going to hear me on the sound waves until like mid-March. Is that a blessing? Is that a curse? I don't know. You decide. Um, but regardless, you're going to be without my just enlightening information and critique for the next couple of weeks. So, you know, if you try to tune in, then you're not going to hear me. But with all that being said, let's jump into this stuff. So the student loan hearings that just happened this week, um, the Supreme Court heard oral, oral arguments in two challenges to Joe Biden's student debt relief plan. Uh, and this was the plan that was passed over the summer, I wanna say. Honestly, time is a construct and I feel like this happened all four years ago, but I know that's not the case. Um, and it allows millions of qualifying students to see up to $20,000 of their federally held debt canceled. Um, so a lot of this is Pell Grant recipients, um, who are basically, like a lot of Pell Grant recipients, are basically able to see all of their debt canceled um, by this program. So it was, you know, very celebrated by a lot of activists. Some people saying, oh, well, he didn't do enough. He should just unilaterally cancel all of the student loan debt. And if he's going to cancel all student loan debt, then he should cancel all medical debt. Um, but I think that generally it was appreciated as like a, a big step forward in terms of the student loan forgiveness fight. Although again, a lot of activists saying this was this was not enough. There's so much more that he could possibly be doing here. So that's kind of like the, the, the original setup for this debate. But of course, because of everything that presidents do, especially this kind of like larger unilateral changes, there's a lot of pushback specifically kind of in a, in a, obviously in a political sense, we hear all of the members of Congress having their own takes, but then also we get a lot of um, judicial challenges. So that's the thing that we're kind of dealing with right now. So the main over, so there were two cases that were kind of jointly brought um, to, the, to the Supreme Court just because they both dealt with um, kind of similar issues regarding this kind of these same principles. So one is Biden versus Nebraska. Um, which was a group of Republican-led states, um, I guess, kind of he head up by Nebraska, um, who argued that the administration exceeded its authority um, by using the pandemic as, quote, a pretext to mask the true goal of fulfilling a campaign promise to erase student loan debt. Um, and the other case was Department of Education versus Brown, which was a case brought by two individuals who did not qualify for the full benefits of the program and argue that the government failed to follow the, quote, proper rulemaking process when putting it in place. So basically, both of these cases are arguing that the executive branch exceeded their authority, did too much, um, and 
basically is not actually able to put forward a program like the student loan debt forgiveness program. Um, and so, of course, like we, we've talked about this before in the past, I think, or, you know, whatever I, you know, in my in my college career, in my in my day as a resident political science major, the question about limiting or empowering the executive branch is kind of an evergreen question, kind of the ebbs and flows of what the executive branch is empowered to do and what it's not empowered to do is like a constant source of conversation. Because obviously like in the constitution, the powers of the presidency are extremely limited. And that was done for a reason because of fear of tyranny, fear of um, this, fear of a presidential power kind of becoming more of a monarchy than they wanted it to be. And so of course it's the presidency is very subordinate to the um, legislature and even to the Supreme Court, checks and balances and all of these things. But over time, what we've seen is that the president has become more and more and more powerful over time, and they're constantly kind of pushing against the boundaries of what the executive branch is able to do. And like, you know, we started having these conversations about like the Louisiana Purchase. Like the president wasn't technically allowed to do something like that, but that kind of pushed the boundaries of the presidential power, and then we were able to acquire the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and again, that's that's kind of a, again, that's been a consideration for the entire history of the American presidency. Um, and it's even been more of a consideration in the past three or four presidencies, right? We talked a lot about this under Obama, if we're talking about things like um, Obamacare, and the DREAM Act. Like these were a lot of like presidential initiatives that seemed to kind of overstep the stated powers of the presidency. And there were a lot of legal challenges that went along with that. And then again, with the Trump administration, like constantly the entire Trump administration was just uh, uh, try to, trying to reinterpret the powers of the presidency and, and kind of expand what the presidency is able to do. Um, and then, of course, under Biden, we have this program, um, you know, things with Ukraine uh, and people, a lot of Biden supporters and a lot of like more far left Biden activists basically argue, you know, the, the, the presidency has a lot more power than Biden has been using and he needs to continue pushing those boundaries forward. He needs to kind of follow along from what Trump was doing and keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Uh, in order to kind of get things done, considering the amount of gridlock and the amount of turmoil that happens in Congress, um, it's kind of up to him to challenge those set principles that are currently in place. It's kind of a very interesting um, consideration. So the kind of major doctrine that these cases are, are seen to be addressing or the um, Supreme Court justices are addressing, it's called the major questions doctrine. Uh, which is a legal theory that says that Congress can be expected to speak with specificity. This is a, a direct quote because I am not a lawyer and I never will be. Um, it's a legal theory that says that Congress can be expected to speak with specificity when it gives an agency power to do something of great political or economic significance. So basically they're saying, they're arguing that the Department of Education was never empowered to put through a program of this size and, again, political and economic significance, like um, student loan forgiveness, and therefore Congress had to be consulted um, in order for the program to be seen as valid. So because they weren't consulted, they're saying that checks and balances in the Constitution are arguing that it is not a valid program and it's it was not it was not put through appropriately and like they're talking about in department of education versus brown they didn't follow the proper rulemaking process so they're arguing that this wasn't a program that the executive branch had the unilateral power to put through by themselves without the consent of congress as far as i understand it that is that is how i <laughs> am interpreting it um so, and again, like this comes down to a lot of the, the conversation about checks and balances. Um, so they're saying that Congress has the 
Congress should have had the um, ability to place a check on the executive branch before the the judicial branch even got around to it. Um, so that's very interesting. And then the other aspect of this is this like idea of the COVID-19 authority. Um, and again, in, in terms of like emergency situations, the executive branch is given a lot more power. So um, with, you know, wars or any kind of like, you know, larger threat to American civilization, the executive branch is given a lot more authority and they're given, you know, more of an ability to do what they think is necessary um, in order to kind of push everyone through. And so similarly with COVID-19, it wasn't like stated necessarily, but the executive branch was kind of given a little bit more leeway to do what they thought was necessary in order to get everyone through. Um, and so Joe Biden and the Biden administration are arguing that the student debt relief program is kind of under that COVID-19 authority. So they're doing what they believe is necessary to help people recover economically from COVID-19. So they're, they're kind of lumping it into the other financial provisions, the other kind of like tax provisions and whatnot that they put forward in order to help kind of relieve the impact of COVID-19, but again, these the um, the collection of Republican states are arguing, like, okay, fine, maybe it's relieving people's um, financial issues due to COVID, but that's clearly not why you were doing it. Your intention wasn't to help people who are struggling financially because of COVID. It was because you made a political promise to um, relieve all this uh, kind of debt and so like that you're doing it for political purposes as opposed to um, actually trying to help people financially recover because of COVID-19. That was repetitive and poorly articulated, but I think you get the idea. Um, so again, that's kind of the like judicial backing for both of these, both of these cases. And again, they were brought forward together um, kind of jointly because both outcomes are kind of kind of do the same thing. Um, that if the justices rule kind of for both of the, um, or like rule for the Biden administration, then the program is going to kind of stick around until another uh, challenge ultimately arises down the line, um, or it will kill the program altogether. So that's kind of why they, these two cases were, were lumped together as they do, you know, as opposed to like doing two separate challenges that are going to have the same outcome. Um, and it is also interesting because, you know, they like I'm sure there were a lot more challenges, um, but they you know, obviously the Supreme Court kind of cherry picks what cases they want to address. And it was interesting that they chose two different programs that address similar things with different reasons. Um, and, and so they're kind of able to get like the full scope of the argument kind of in one fell swoop. Um, just kind of an inter interesting thing about the Supreme Court. I don't know, whatever. So with all that being said, the what is the likely outcome of these cases? So obviously there are enough um, conservative justices who have articulated concerns um, and kind of skepticism about the, sorry, I'm taking my jacket off. This is, oh my God, it's so noisy in here. So much noise. Okay. Um, there are enough conservative justices who have articulated um, that they have concerns about the program, about the program's validity. Obviously, with the Supreme Court hearings, um, you can kind of hear the lines of questioning. And when you're hearing those lines of questioning, it gives you a little bit of an indication as to what particular issues the justice are, justices are concerned about. And it also gives you a little bit of an indication of the direction in which the justices are actually going to go. Um, and so obviously it's going to take a good while for us to hear about the actual outcome of the case. But given the fact that it's a pretty hefty majority um, kind of conservative court and there's a pretty hefty amount of skepticism already, it does not look like the program is, is as safe as it could be. Um, and that's something that 
the Biden or Joe Biden himself has acknowledged um, that it's entirely possible that this program will get struck down altogether. Um, although, you know, of course, everything is murky until the decision actually comes out. And this is just a little personal annoyance for me. I'm live, laugh, love, love the student loan forgiveness advocates. I think that they're doing a great job. I think that this is a ton of work and it's a very difficult issue to advocate for. Um, however, the slogan that they have settled on for their advocacy campaign is Joe Biden needs to forgive all student loan debt and he can do it with the stroke of a pen. And they like hold up big pens and they give away pens that say it. And it's it's like it's like a good marketing campaign, except for the fact that it's like just simply not true. Like it, it, Biden can. Yes. In in the short term, he can, with the flick of a pen, resolve all of this debt. So true. But that doesn't mean it's going to last because all of these um that the, the, all these things are going to be up for so many legal challenges over and over and over again. And there's no saying, there's no um, saying for sure that the bills and the executive orders are going to actually be able to live up to that kind of legal scrutiny. And so it just seems like a silly and kind of simplistic way of, of, of articulating the argument, even though I agree with them. I just think that it's interesting that like that's what they've that's the slogan they've settled on and that's what they're going to do forever. Like even if this court if the court um does end up killing the program they're going to keep saying but Joe Biden can do it with the flick of a pen, but he can't, he can't cuz there're checks and balances. But anyway, I just think it's interesting. Um and again, Joe Biden himself has said that he's not sure that the program is going to um, hold up to this to, to the Supreme Court and to this level of scrutiny. Um, and so again, if he if he puts through another program, one that forgives all debt altogether, not just up to that twenty thousand dollar threshold, you know he's going to be opening the administration and the program up to continued scrutiny. And there's no way of saying for sure that those programs are going to hold up either. So I just think that's kind of like an interesting dynamic to think about as well in terms of kind of the advocates and and those like external stakeholders. Um, for this whole process. Um, it's also interesting, something I was, I was reading kind of some like, you know, expert analysis of the actual trial and the kind of comparison of the lawyers for both sides. And they did say that um, some experts have said that the Biden administration lawyers presented a really strong case that may have kind of preserved at least in part the the, the the program. So the, this was a really funny quote from the experts that said that um, it was the like the difference between the Biden administration lawyers versus the uh, lawyers for like the the prosecution, I guess it's not really called the prosecution, but whatever. Is it? I don't know. My lawyer sister is going to text me and yell at me for not technically knowing what the right terms are. But anyway, um, they said it was like the difference between a star quarterback and two tiddlywinks players. <laughs> and that just made me giggle because the tiddlywinks players, like, <laughs> what? Anyway, so that was just a great visual for me personally. Um, but anyway, they did say that the lawyer did lay out such a great argument that if the Supreme Court, you know, like works the way it should, it's possible that the performance actually played a really strong role, will actually play a really strong role in the outcome. Um, and something for me I thought that was really interesting, like I'm so stuck in politics, like whenever I like listen to hearings or any kind of anything like that, even if someone makes a really great argument, I know people have already decided what they're going to do and how they're going to vote. They're not really necessarily even listening to the arguments. They're not letting those things kind of inform their judgment. But obviously, with like the Supreme Court, they're supposed to be doing that. Um, they're supposed to be really considering the arguments that are made, um, kind of along with the legal precedent and everything like that. Um, so it's interesting to think about the fact that someone who actually did a really good job articulating their case might have an influence on the outcome of um, outcome of the judgment. And I hope that's the case because that'll that'll instill a little bit more um, hope in the power of rhetoric, the power of our legal and judicial systems, our political systems, 
wow, what an amazing thing that that would be if we actually, the people who are, you know, paid to, to make good arguments actually made a good argument that makes an influence on people. Live, laugh, love. I think that's great. Um, but yeah, kind of ranted about that for longer than I expected to. So we are going to now move into the Chicago mayoral race. So we love talking about a little local politics uh, on this show. It's always fun to kind of mix it up. So we're going to go to Chicago now. Um, so I guess Chicago, I did not realize that they had their mayoral election. I mean, I'm like a little bit, I'm like a little bit linked into New York politics because that's like where my family is from, um, where they live. And obviously I'm like pretty linked into DC politics because that's where I live and New Jersey. But like, I just, I'm not, I'm not following Chicago politics at all. Um, <laughs> So I didn't even realize that they had their mayoral election this week, but they did. Uh, so apparently they have a weird kind of off-cycle election. And so they had their kind of like, they. I guess it was a, a general election, um, although it kind of is more of a kind of jungle primary situation, given the way that the political layout of Chicago is in that I don't think a Republican would ever win in Chicago. I seriously doubt. I mean... We're going to get into this, but this is a little spoiler up top. A quasi-Republican is probably going to win, but we'll get into that. Um, but someone who is a Republican, like, candidate, I do not think is going to win. Um, but they had their um, election, and it's the case that if they don't, no way wins, uh, you know, 50% of the vote, they go to a runoff election later down the line. Um, and so that is the case with this election. There were Four major frontrunner candidates, including the incumbent uh, mayor, I almost said governor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and the top two candidates, because no one received a majority vote, are going to be moving forward to the runoff election in April. And just as a very funny side note, I saw, like, because again, I've discussed this before, but I'm on a very specific, very nerdy side of the internet, and someone tweeted, Oh my gosh, guys, um, the Michigan runoffs and the Chicago runoffs are on the same day. Everyone clear your calendars. Like, just these nerdy, nerdy people, including myself, who, like, literally are so excited because there are two, like, hyper-local runoff elections. <laughs> and they're like, we need to, like, be online all day doing this um, analysis. So, anyway, I just thought that was a very funny thing. Um, but... Getting back to Chicago. So one of the most notable things about this election, and there's kind of like two main forms of discourse about this um, this election. And one is that Lori Lightfoot did not advance to the runoff. Uh, she is the first incumbent in 40 years not to win re-election. Um, she was the first black woman to serve as mayor of Chicago and first LGBTQ plus, I think, ever to, to be mayor of Chicago. Um, she was very popular when she was first elected um, and then slowly but surely alienated every single one of her base groups um, and just had became very, very unpopular by the end of her term, mo kind of mostly due to her response to COVID and to crime, um, but also just kind of generally, you, we've all seen the memes, we've all seen the pictures. She was kind of the the butt of a kind of bigger joke for the for the past several years um and again alienated a lot of her constituency um over the course of her time in office um but also like name a politician that isn't that didn't become more unpopular due to their response to covid and to crime Every single politician has become less popular due to their response to COVID and to crime, one way or the other. It, anyway, COVID and crime are politician killers. Not great. Um, but let's see. Where was I? Sorry. Getting distracted here. Um, so the core opponents of this campaign, um, there were three people that also that also kind of got like a pretty large uh, chunk of the vote. Um, and then obviously the two of them who are going to be running in the runoff election in April. Um, Paul Vallis was the 
um, front runner for this election. He got 34% of the vote. Um, he is a Democrat, a former public school executive um, with more conservative views on policing and education, uh, which is kind of the other big thing that we're going to talk about later. Uh, there's also Brandon Johnson, who is a Democratic county commissioner who is endorsed by the teachers union. Uh, he won 20% of the vote. Also, Paul Vallis was endorsed by the, um, the police union. So we've got the police union on one side and the teachers union on the other side. That tracks to me. That makes sense. Um, and then there was Jesus Garcia, who is a progressive member of Congress who has um, kind of like a portion of his district in Chicago. And then, of course, Lori Lightfoot. Um, Lori Lightfoot only got like 17% of the vote, 14% of the vote. Um, so again, a big part of the narrative around this election has been just not only was Lori Lightfoot rejected, like she was resoundingly rejected um, by the electorate. It's not even like she came in like a healthy second um, or like even a narrow first, like she really, really lost, um, which is again, like a, a pretty resounding rejection of her candidacy and also her mayorship. Mayorship, yeah. Um, so again, kind of going back to, and one of, again, one of the reasons that Lori Lightfoot lost was because of the issue of crime in Chicago and the fact that crime has been kind of pretty steadily rising and people don't feel like she did enough to respond to that adequately. Um, and so that has kind of become a, a very central issue of the campaign and kind of just of like public discourse in Chicago in general. So, and it's kind of become a, as I'm sure everyone has seen from the midterms in 2022 and also just kind of like general conversation and news, um, crime has become a pretty central issue in a lot of liberal cities in general. It's something we're talking about in New York, in DC, in Chicago, um, kind of every major city, especially ones that are kind of pretty liberal are having this kind of reckoning about crime and about kind of the best way to address those things. Um, and so, you know, a lot of middle of the road Democrats, especially in these cities, are a lot more supportive of, you know, hard on crime candidates, um, especially ones that have some kind of police background or, you know, have the support of the police. So um, Adams in New York being a good example, he was a former chief of police, also <laughs> just wild you know what i'm gonna tangent for one second and i'm gonna read something that he said if i can find it yes okay ready for this adams just pulled a sponge out on stage and urged the crowd to embrace spirituality and quote ring out their despair quote you will never be who you ought to be if you carry around a saturated sponge of despair you gotta ring it out he says <laughs> spongebob squarepants um, I'm happy for him. That's so tangential, but I just thought it was really funny, so I'm bringing it up. But anyway, he he won against, uh, Adams won against a lot more moderate, or a lot more liberal candidates last year. I think it was last year. Oh my gosh. Um, last year, who um, were a little bit, like, not necessarily soft on crime, but were kind of had other perspectives about the role of policing in cities and about how the police should operate, about how much police, how much money the police should get, um, and so of course that was that was kind of a very central issue um, in these campaigns. And crime in Chicago has increased in uh, from 2021 to 2022, uh, including robberies, thefts, and burglaries. Woo, burglaries, um, which I think is like it's a tough statistic to be talking about the increase in crime between like now and 2020, like during COVID. Like, I, I think about this a lot with a lot of different statistics that people throw out. Of I feel like these years should be outliers. Um, like it should be hard to use these statistics as like a, a representation of a new normal. Like obviously you can use it as an, an analysis of like what the reality is right now, but can you really use it as a statistic of kind of what the new normal is becoming, because we don't know if things are going to kind of regress to the mean. Um, but anyway, I just think it's interesting. So Vallis, who ended up being the front runner again, won like 34% of the vote, uh, 
endorsed by the police union, um, had a banner at his victory rally that said public safety first. Um, kind of, it just gives you a pretty good idea of what the focus is for this campaign and for um, what kind of what the priorities are. Um, he has argued that he can make the city safer, calling for bolstering the police union, improving arrest rates for serious crimes, and expanding charter schools. Um, so again, focusing on differentiating education, again, making spending more money on the police, hiring more police officers, doing more arresting, um, kind of changing the way that, that policing works in Chicago. Um, and while Vallis kind of went to the right of Lori Lightfoot, Johnson went to the left. Uh, he even at one point suggested that police departments should be receiving less funding, uh, which he then, of course, walked back because that's a very unpopular opinion, um, especially when you're looking at like a primary voting audience. Um, you know, that regression to like the the more moderate side of the Democratic Party in like an election like this. Um, which, of course, that perspective is a lot more in line with the Black Lives Matter advocacy um, that argued for more mental health services and social work to be included with police forces, as opposed to just hiring more rank and file police officers and doing more um, arresting and the kind of the things that, that Vallis is arguing for. Um, which, again, that, that, that kind of perspective is very popular amongst a certain subsection of the population, but probably not a big enough one to really be successful in elections like this. Another interesting thing is that Vallis is the only um, white candidate. And, of course, like being the front runner in a majority minority city, it's kind of a, an, in, an interesting change. Um, there's also he's also been accused of kind of using some racist dog whistles um talking about you know taking our city back uh, and all that kind of stuff so it's that that's also just like an interesting dynamic in this race of you know things that like maybe are not the most kosher um you know every anytime someone talks about taking the city back or taking the country back you know, taking them back from who uh, uh-uh. just you know whatever um so that was just like that's just another interesting aspect of this conversation is that, you know, whatever, whether or not you like it or choose to acknowledge it, race plays a role in everything. And I think elections more than other things, race is, race is important in. And of course, like in a large city uh, that is very diverse, race is going to play, play a role. And it's going to be interesting to see what the like demographic breakdowns are. Um, I, I don't know if they do this kind of data for these races, but to like even look at the cross tabs and see who, what, what races are voting for which group and which age groups are voting um, for which candidate. Because I think that could be, you know, a pretty important indicator of the way that the city is, city is going. Um, but anyway, another tangent that I'm going to make, and this is my, you know, because I'm a political scientist, my, my poli-sci brain, Something that I'm very interested in is the comparison, because this is just something I feel like I've noticed, is the comparison between like the partisanship scores um, of this, a city's members of Congress versus their mayor. Because it seems like, seems to me, that members of Congress are more liberal than their mayoral counterparts. Like I feel like that's this way in Chicago, that's the way in New York. Obviously, D.C. doesn't count, <laughs> whatever. Um, but it certainly seems like the electorate is more willing to um, vote for more liberal members of Congress. So they're like more in, they're more interested in like a farther left perspective on the national stage, but are less interested in that perspective on a local level. And I think that that's a very interesting thing. And I'd be interested in like looking at those comparisons um i don't know if they collect these these this kind of data i don't know if someone's already done it they probably have um but anyway someone remind me don't get a phd because i don't actually want to do that but this is so interesting imagine do i don't want to do statistical analysis i really really don't but if someone's out there and is looking for a phd dissertation topic feel free to take this, just credit me in your acknowledgements. Um, 
just because I think the people's people's voting patterns on a local, state, national level are probably different, and it's going to be it would be interesting to see what what leads people to to make those different choices. Um, but anyway, because I feel like people are probably less partisan on a local level, so they probably have they're probably more willing to vote for someone of like the opposite party on a local level, but are a lot less willing to do that on a national level, even though the people on a local level are probably going to affect their day-to-day lives more. Like a hyper-local level, like a city, like a town council or city council. Well, anyway, if, if someone's listening and has already written this paper and wants to send it my way, please do. Um, I'll search it on JSTOR. If it exists, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, okay, getting back to Chicago. Sorry, let's just run this back. Um, I think that everyone is looking to go in a different direction post-COVID, um, which I think is also probably part of the reason why Lightfoot lost so aggressively, um, is that we, I mean, I guess, look, we thought that the um, 2022 is going to show, oh, nobody wants to go in the same direction that they were going in 2020. We need to rapidly, completely change directions. And that's not really what we saw being the case. So I did write, like, people want to go in a different direction post-COVID, but maybe that's not the case. Maybe it is only on a, on a kind of more local level um, that people who, like, on a federal level, people weren't as, like, the low, the most COVID provisions were a local policy idea. Um, So maybe they feel more strongly about changing the direction of their representation regarding COVID because they were more impacted by those day-to-day issues. So that's why I feel like that was was probably played into um, Lightfoot's kind of aggressive loss. Um, And then again, it's also interesting because this race, of course, like isn't necessarily a bellwether for, for 2024 because it's a large urban liberal city. So it's not really going to be an indication of the Republican slash Democrat situation. But um, it could be an interesting case study for the Democratic Party. Because another evergreen question that we're constantly talking about is which cohort of the Democratic Party is more electorally efficient? Which is the more electable group? which is the group that's better at governing? Um, Is it this group that's a little bit farther to the left and is more interested in reform? Um, Or is it the group that's a little bit farther to the center um, and is kind of more interested in kind of like status quo policies and and building things up from the inside as kind of breaking things down from the outside? Um, And again, it's an evergreen question. It's something that we're probably never going to know the answer to. (coughs) Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Guys, we're good. I'm not dying. Don't worry. Wouldn't it be so awkward if I died while doing this show? Dude, that'd be so upsetting. For That would be, like, traumatizing for, like, a lot of people. Anyway. So, anyway, which cohort of the Democratic Party is going to be more electorally efficient? We don't know. This debate is always ongoing. We always think we have an answer. It seems like the answer is that more moderate candidates do better in um, general elections, but they don't do as well in primaries. That's that's kind of the case that we've seen from the Republicans and from the Democrats. Um, how do we resolve that? Um, who knows? I think the other addendum question to that is not only who's the most who's the most electable, who's the better group at governing? I think that's also an interesting situation. So anyway, that's what I want to talk about with the Chicago mayoral. Um, We will come back to that in April when that election actually happens. um, And we will we will discuss the outcome of that race and what it means for the future of the Democratic Party, the future of city politics, the future of policing, etc, etc. But now let's get into some 2024 news. Just got a couple kind of short stories that I want to cover. So one is that Elisa Slotkin is officially running for Senate in Michigan. Um, So Debbie Stabenow, am I right about this? Give me one moment. Here we go, guys. 
Yes, I was right. I'm so good at this, guys. Um, Debbie Stabenow announced that she is not running for re-election in 2024, um, which, just like California, kind of opens up the um, seat to a rising star of either party um, to kind of get a little bit more influence. Um, obviously, senators are a lot better known than individual members of the House, have a lot more influence, at least theoretically. Um, and, you know, again, just able to kind of propel somebody into a more influential position. Um, so again, Elisa Slotkin is a member of Congress, a member of the House of Representatives, I should say. She, I believe, was involved in... She's involved in January 6th, I think. Um, but again, it's this is a this is a pretty big race because a it's it's high profile. Obviously, a Senate race replacing a long-standing um, incumbent in a swing state is going to be uh, an important way for a Democrat to gain some notoriety, come up in the party, kind of deepen the bench that already exists. Um, and it's a very politically diverse state, so any campaign here is going to be a good chance for someone to prove their larger political viability um, and also to get a lot of kind of national attention, a lot of national news attention, um, just because it's a, it's a race that people are going to be focusing on. It's a race that people are going to be donating to. Um, people are going to be paying attention to this race, both in the primary and the general. It's also, you know, it's going to be a high-profile race on both sides of the aisle. The state is a swing state, um, even though it's been pretty democratically controlled recently. Um, and so, again, any race here, there's going to be a lot of attention coming from both sides. Republicans have been saying that they're going to target the seat aggressively, um, given that they would really like to flip the seat from the Democrats. Um, so it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of focus, a lot of attention, a lot of money, a lot of advertising going on in this race. So while there's also while there's on one hand the opportunity for a Democrat to become a lot bigger in the party, there's also a lot of chance for a Republican to come up in the party because both parties really do need to deepen their benches, and also particularly with the Republicans, kind of decide which direction they want the party to go, um, and so this is going to be a big race in determining whether or not they can ever have a viable general election candidate again, um, and that's something we're going to be kind of watching in 2024. Um, and Slotkin seems like a particularly good candidate for this race. Um, despite being in a very flippy district, she was one of the 2018 um, women that flipped Republican-held seats um, and is in a, I think it's a majority Republican district. She won again in 2020, won again in 2022. Um, so she's been holding on and kind of winning by a margin, um, even though it's a flippy purple-red district. And so she makes herself a pretty solid, solid candidate for this race because she's able to appeal to, uh, you know, a broader audience politically. Um, and is, you know, again, more of a moderate candidate, so she's going to be able to poach some um, more moderate Republicans, especially if the general election candidate that the Republicans choose is kind of off in the general election candidates in 2022 realm. Um, of course, because she's so moderate, she might have some trouble getting buy-in from the more progressive wing of the party. But ultimately, you know, I think that we get a lot of um, a lot of this conversation in the primary, but the party always rallies around um, by the by the by the general election and like the progressive wing of the party is more interested in winning than in being right. I think a lot of the time, which I don't think is necessarily the case with the Republicans could be wrong about that, but that's just kind of how I how I feel. Um, so anyway, I think that's also going to be a conversation that happens. Um, Slotkin Annette released her announcement video. I don't have time for it right now, but I'll post it in the show notes. Um, she is focusing on, a, she has a pitch that's pretty heavily focused on jobs and economic matters, which makes perfect sense. You know, focusing on the same job issues that Biden talked about in the State of the Union. So talking about jobs with dignity, labor protections, all that kind of stuff. Um, she's also focusing a lot on the idea of being a public servant. Um, so trying to re-emphasize the fact that there are people in Congress who care about doing public service and aren't just interested in 
kind of doing this kind of work for themselves and for their own gain, but are genuinely interested in helping people live better lives and, and become better members of society and become more successful economically, socially, all that kind of stuff. So that's that's kind of the general pitch. Middle of the road, public servant, focusing on jobs. It's going to be a very, you know, I think it's going to be a very straight up and down campaign. Um, but I think that could be kind of the perfect solution for um, this kind of campaign in this kind of state. So I think that's pretty good. And it's also fairly significant that a lot of powerful players in Michigan politics have indicated that they don't plan on running, including Pete Buttigieg, who is actually a resident of Michigan, um, because I think he moved there officially because that's where his husband is from. Um, So it's looking like she's the early front runner out of the gate. Um, There are a couple other people that have indicated that they might be interested in running, uh, but there have been no other official announcements, and I don't see this being... I mean, obviously, I say this like being so far out. I'm, I don't think this is going to be the kind of um, campaign where um, the primary candidates are like eating each other alive. Um, but who knows? We will see. Um, there are also, you know, the Republican candidates that have stated that they're running or are probably going to run. Um, the current front runner appears to be Nikki Snyder, who is a Republican member of the State Board of Education dangerous um and then also former representative pete peter i don't know how to say his name mayor mayor meyer whatever Uh, i'm not the pronunciation police um but he was one of the republicans who voted for impeachment and then lost his primary challenge um so it's possible that he is going to mount a campaign but he hasn't said much about it And of course, as I said, Republicans are planning on aggressively targeting the seat, which isn't unexpected. Um, But again, a more moderate Republican candidate is going to have a hard time getting through the primary. Um, And then again, that more aggressive candidate that ultimately wins the nomination is going to have a much harder time come the general election. Um, So a race will be watching, certainly, but we'll kind of let the news there simmer, uh, considering we are pretty far out. But It'll sneak up on us a lot faster than we expect. Okay, last but not least, very briefly, I want to talk about CPAC. So CPAC is coming up, which is always a kind of solidly chaotic time on the internet. Um, And this year looks a little bit different than other years. Um, In past years, the conference has included kind of all of the rising stars of the party, a lot of very influential Republicans. Um, But this year kind of seems to be just conservative, quote unquote, conservative celebrities, Um, Mike Lindell, Carrie Lake, Donald Trump, all of the people that are kind of the um, spokespeople for a certain wing of the party, if you catch my drift. That is the kind of main core of people that are attending. Many 2024 rivals, DeSantis, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, are all skipping. which is fairly significant, again, as we are kind of getting into conversations around 2024. This has generally been seen as a great time to get in front of the um, Republican electorate and kind of start making their case. Um, But given that all these 2024 arrivals are skipping, potentially changes what CPAC means um, in terms of its influence over the Republican Party. So if important Republicans are skipping CPAC, does this mean that Republican, the Republican Party is ready to reject the Trump side of the party? And like, according to this metric, yes, um, because the people that are running against Trump in 2024 are not looking to be seen as allies of Trump. They're all looking to be seen as entirely separate from that wing of the party. Um, and their campaigns are all attempting to draw a distinction between themselves and the Trump campaign and presidency, even if they're running on similar issues or even running on Trump campaign, Trump administration accomplishments, they're trying to do it without bringing Trump into the argument overall. Um, And so now instead of being this kind of like quasi RNC situation, it now kind of appears that CPAC is just a free media show for Donald Trump and again, that particular wing of the Republican Party. Um, this quote from the New York Times said that CPAC 
is becoming, quote, more like a sideshow than a featured act, one that seems exclu- one that seems made almost exclusively for conservative media. Um, so they're just now coming up with, you know, sound bites that are going to be fed back right into the kind of larger conservative Newsmax Republican feedback loop, um, as opposed to kind of trying to change any minds or develop new policy. Um, this is kind of now just about... I just lost my train of thought in the middle of the It's now a lot more just about, let's just feed back into the Donald Trump side of this party. Um, something also interesting is that Fox News has tried to distance themselves from the conference overall. Although it looks like the, you know, the obviously the Breitmarts and the Newsmaxes of the world are not. Um, Fox, like the Fox streaming platform has historically um, helped sponsor the conference, but they are not this year. And a lot of the bigger Republican talking heads are not in the speaking lineup. Um, so Tucker Carlson, uh, Laura Ingram has have spoken at the conference many times in the past, um, but none of them appear on the lineup um, this year, which is very interesting given the way that Tucker Carlson is. We don't need to get into all of that. Um, but again, kind of interesting to see, it'll be interesting to see what that conference looks like, um, and it'll be interesting to see what that impact is on the Trump wing of the party and whether or not the Republican Party is ready to reject them. Um, and we shall see. Only time will tell. Um, and of course, even if the Republican core is ready to get rid of the Trump administration, is the Republican electorate? And that is kind of an entirely different question. And it's going to be interesting to see what level of influence that Republican core has on the Republican electorate overall. But that's all I wanted to say on CPAC. And now to close it out, my little quote from for, for our little funky, funky, fresh political story of the week. It was Black History Month. It is not anymore. Now it's Women's History Month. But regardless, and again, this is this is my pitch every year. It's Women's History Month. It's the perfect time that if you're in love with me, let me know. It's a perfect time to celebrate. Celebrate Women's History Month by telling me that you are in love with me. Anyway, so at a Black History Month uh, this week, Joe Biden was talking about, like, you know, institutionalized racism and, like, the history of um, race relations in the United States. And he goes, I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> Which, now, everyone is dragging him for that, but I genuinely think is maybe a top 10 Joe Biden line of all time. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Like, he just says the darndest things. It's so funny to me. Um... I'll post the clip of that as well, just for everyone to get some giggles, because it really, it made me laugh. Everyone's, I mean, like conservative, conservative media is dragging him, but it's like, what a goofy, silly thing to say. That was not on his speech. He did not write that down. He just said that. I love it. I, I, Grandpa Joe, never change. But with all that being said, I will see y'all in, in three weeks. We're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, you know, come come when, I, when I'm... Uh, wow, I cannot speak today. Um, when I get back, uh, have a lovely spring break. I hope you guys are all enjoying the slightly warmer weather. Of course, if you want to see any of the show notes and everything, I'll be posting it later today, maybe earlier tomorrow. Um, Instagram is Sheep Thrills Radio. Twitter is Sheep Thrills GW. Spotify, all those things. But with all that being said, I hope you have a lovely week and I will talk to you guys in the next one. See you later.